Genesis 25, we'll begin in a moment in verse 27. So Genesis 25, 27, that's page 23 if you're using that Red Pew Bible. Last week we considered how God's choice to make Jacob the covenant child to save Jacob was made by God apart from anything in Jacob. It happened before Jacob was even born and had done anything good or evil. And while Jacob had done nothing, he still was, like all of us, born a sinner, rebellious against God, tainted by evil, disgusting in the sight of a holy and righteous God. He was, as you may recall, spiritually speaking, the shriveled carcass of a roadkill squirrel, that I had to pull out of Tigga's mouth. Yet God chose to save Jacob. Why? Because of his love. Only love can explain the motivation to restore a roadkill squirrel to life. Now we, in the Presbyterian tradition, we tend to talk a lot about God's choices, God's will, God's predestination, God's sovereign election, and it's good that we do that. The Bible talks a lot about those things. But sometimes, in an effort to emphasize God's sovereignty, we go too far, diminishing the significance of human choices, of human actions, of human good works. God's sovereignty is not so frail and weak that it is endangered if we speak of human will and human freedom and human choices. Now, what does this mistake we make sound like? Well, often it sounds like a lot of other theological error. It's all wrapped up in Bible verses. The most common one is this. The person who makes the mistake of diminishing the importance of human choices will cite a passage like Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous acts are as filthy rags. You see, Pastor, right there in the Bible, our righteousness is no good. Our good works do not matter. What we do is of no consequence. But that's to pull that verse out of its context and to use it in a way that Isaiah did not intend. Moreover, if we set that view against our New Testament reading of verse heaped upon verse, all of which declare the necessity of good works, let me say that again. The New Testament reading is a selection of verses, and it is by no means exhaustive. It is a selection of verses which points to the absolute necessity of good works. You see, our choices are weighty indeed. Last week's text demonstrated God's loving election, God's choice to save some because he loves them. But the very same chapter goes on immediately to show how that plays out in this world. Here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And that means that if you want to know the truth about the weight of our choices, then you must know this book well. So hear now the word of Almighty God. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, 
while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Lord, guide us into an understanding of this passage. While we will not plumb all of its depths or consider everything that it might teach, nevertheless, let us learn an important lesson from what it does teach. And let us understand that you have endowed us, your image bearers, with wills, with the ability to make choices. We are volitional creatures. And with that comes great obligation and great responsibility. Help us to understand the weight of the choices we make. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So two mathematician friends, and, and this is a loose retelling of true events. To use Hollywood terminology, this is based on a true story. Two mathematician friends often found themselves discussing the interesting aspects of the numbers they encountered. My brother's a mathematician. I totally see this happening. Okay? You and I wouldn't do this, but mathematicians think this way. So, for example, four is an interesting number because it's the smallest non-prime number. You know, 16 is the lowest number that is a double square. 121 is a palindromic square, etc., etc., etc. You get the idea, okay? So one day, these two mathematicians get in together to a taxi, and that taxi number was 1729. And the one mathematician pointed out to the other that the number 1729 wasn't interesting at all. To which the other replied, it must be. We're talking about it, aren't we? This has become known as the interesting number paradox, which states that every whole number is interesting, even if you can find nothing interesting about it. Said another way, that which has nothing interesting about it is interesting for that reason. So it seems as if there is no way for either of those views to be true, and yet the greatest minds that have lived have wrestled with this paradox, and they find it to be logically inescapable. It is a paradox. Now, a paradox, and I've got to stop knowing some of the punsters we have in our congregation, a paradox is not two places to tie up your boat. Can't believe I have to deal with that. A paradox is a situation which appears to be self-contradictory. Epimenides, around 600 BC, famously said, all Cretans are liars. 
What's the paradox there? Epimenides was a Cretan. So was he telling the truth when he said all Cretans are liars? It's a paradox. Some of the most essential truths of our Christian faith are paradoxical. They appear, at least at first glance, to be self-contradictory. The Trinity. One God in three persons? It's paradoxical. Next week, we'll be looking at the paradox of the Incarnation. Jesus was both fully God and fully man. How can that be? And we'll see briefly next week that it took Christianity 400-plus years and an immeasurable amount of pain and agony to arrive at this conclusion regarding the Incarnation. Stop trying to explain away the paradox and simply accept it as the teaching of Scripture. When Scripture presents us with a paradox, we need to accept it. And we need to understand that just because we cannot wrap our minds around it doesn't mean that God cannot wrap his mind around it. What is to us a paradox is not to him. And part of our walk of faith is accepting those teachings which seem paradoxical to us. And this is good advice for this morning. For this morning, we're going to wrestle with yet another paradox in the realm of human experiences. And like the others, if we do not accept the tension and simply live with it, if we try to explain things down to a point where our brains are comfortable, we will get in trouble. And in fact, this paradox has divided huge chunks of the church for centuries now, because instead of living with the tension, we try to explain it away and we get ourselves in trouble. Like the God-man, like the Trinity, it's best to simply say what the scripture says and just let the paradox hang there and trust God to have it under control. The paradox we face this morning is the question of divine and human wills. If God chooses, and we saw clearly last week that he does, if God chooses, then isn't mankind reduced to mere robots, devoid of any meaning or real significance? Many in our Presbyterian tradition can readily accept last week's sermon, wherein we say plainly that God chooses those whom he will save. It's often called the doctrine of election, or referred to as God's sovereign grace. But we often go too far when we begin to carelessly imply that our choices do not matter. God is sovereign, we say. He's in control. What he wants to happen happens. We have no say over the outcome of our lives in any way, shape, or form. But that's not what the great reformers taught, and it's not what the Bible teaches. God's choices do not make our choices of no consequence. It is not either or, but both and. Genesis chapter 25 demonstrates the reality of God's sovereign election and the weight of our choices. What we do matters. The choices we make have impact and are of importance. Let's take a look. How does this passage lay that out? Last week, we saw how God chose to redeem and save Jacob. In love, God predestined Jacob to blessedness and to salvation. 
Before the twins were born and had done anything good or bad, God told Rebekah that the younger, Jacob, was his chosen covenant child, and that Esau, the older, would serve him. And here we have, before us in today's text, the reality of the boys' lives and how they grew up and the choices they made. Now, in the church, we tend to speak of Jacob first. We usually refer to Jacob and Esau, but the Bible usually does so in birth order. It's Esau and Jacob, and so Esau is addressed first, and so we will consider Esau first right now. So look at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. 28, Esau, or Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. We'll come back to the portion skipped in just a moment. I spent most of my life reading this passage through my own personal lens. And that lens interpreted it this way. Esau was a hunter, an outdoorsman. He was skilled in tracking and in hiding and in surviving, living off the land. In other words, Esau was a manly man. Jacob didn't want to go out and do the hard work of hunting. Jacob didn't want to get dirty and live outside and go hunting. He wanted to hang around the tents. Jacob was a mama's boy. I got it very wrong. It's an important warning against interpreting an ancient text set in a different culture by our modern Western standards. So we need to wrestle with this in the context of scriptures, not in the context of Scott's mind. So as we look at the wider scriptures, we see that the ideal, the gold standard of human existence is never the hunter. Now, hunting is not prohibited, even in the later Mosaic law, and yet the hunter is never extolled in the Bible. In fact, Genesis specifically notes three men as hunters, Nimrod, Ishmael, and Esau, and each is portrayed as a man without faith who did not call upon the name of the Lord. You see, the life of the hunter was the solitary life. And we've said it over and over again, it is not good for the man to be alone. The life of the hunter is a solitary life, at least in that culture, in that context. God did not place man in the wilderness, but in the garden in Eden. And mankind was to expand upon that starting point. You see, gardens are tended. They are kept. They are planned and orderly and arranged. Out of the chaos of the great sea, God brought forth land. And out of the wilderness of that land, he carved out a garden, an orchard, a place of orderliness, a place tended and kept and cared for. To live the life of the ancient hunter was to move away from that order of the garden, and to move back towards the chaos of the primeval, unformed world. Now, you remember from school, number lines and graphs? Remember how they have a starting point, a zero point? It's called the origin. And if one moves in one direction from that starting point, we label that movement positive. If you move in the opposite direction, we label that movement 
negative. If we take Eden as our origin, our starting point, the zero point of human existence, then movement in the direction pointed by God toward more culture, toward more society, toward more togetherness, toward more people, not fewer, if we move in that direction, we move from the starting point in a positive direction. But if we move in the opposite, toward more chaos, toward more loneliness, toward more isolation, we move in the negative direction. The hunter and that culture had to return to the wilderness. He moved away from living with others. He was, literally speaking, antisocial. It was movement in the wrong direction. Again, is hunting wrong? No. Isolation is wrong. Let's be careful here. As many of you know, I'm a hunter, which, of course, is an overly generous use of that word. Like Esau, on this occasion, I come home with nothing slung over my shoulder on a routine basis. But I like sitting outside in the cold with a gun on my lap. I don't know why. Anyway, in that world, the hunter would have been the man who lived alone in the wilderness, coming to town only as was needed to sell his game and buy supplies. Now, you want to sit in a duck blind and socialize with other men? That's commendable. You want to spend a weekend or three hanging out with uncles and cousins and grandfathers and fathers and brothers and sons? That's a good thing. If hunting is a hobby and a social event, then have a blast. Get it? Have a blast? That's funny. The point here is that Esau... Don't shake your head at me. (laughs) The point here is that Esau is choosing a lifestyle that takes him away from the covenant community of believers which may have something to say about hunting on Sunday mornings, but other than that, have some fun out there. The weight of Esau's lifestyle choices took him into the wilderness alone, away from God's people, the covenant community. And we're told that his father fostered and encouraged that behavior. It is not just the weight of Esau's choices which are on display here, but those of his father also. And so I will say, dear parent, dear grandparent, you are not loving your child by supporting them in the things that are bad for them. To say, oh, I love my daughter so much, and she loves soccer so much, and the club team she's part of, it plays on Sunday morning. Love is the best motivation for doing something but it does not guarantee that what you do will be the best thing. Isaac loved Esau's game and so encouraged him to pursue a lifestyle that took him away from the covenant family. It was not good for sinless Adam to be alone, how much less so for sinners like us to be alone. Esau needed the church. We need the church. The weight of Esau's choices was a life apart from God's people and away from godliness. Consider now the descriptions of Jacob from the same two verses. Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Rebecca loved Jacob. Living in tents, by way of contrast, was a sign of the civilized life, of a socialized life. In that setting, not political socialism, but socialization. 
Living in tents is what shepherds did. It was the more refined, more cultured life. Living in tents and tending flocks was an advancement upon the Garden of Eden. Now, part of our problem here is that our view of tents is so radically different from their reality. Our tents nowadays are so ultra-lightweight that a man like Esau could easily lug a tent into the wilderness and sleep in one. But that was not the truth back then. Those tents were not portable in that way. So when he goes into the wilderness, he's sleeping out in the wilderness. Jacob was sleeping in tents. Think maybe of like a manufactured house. Technically movable, but pretty nice and pretty hard to move. That's probably a better view of the tents they have here. So tents were the civilized life. Also, the wilderness life of the hunter, it took a step back from Eden's orderliness, but shepherding built upon it. Shepherding flocks was more akin to God's garden. Both require tending. Both require planning. Both require daily care. The hunter ran into the wild hoping it would yield its bounty. The shepherd took dominion over the wild taming its animals, domesticating them, and bringing them under his care. And the Bible extols those who raise their food rather than pursue it. From Abel, to Moses, to David, to Amos, to Jesus himself. The shepherd is the standard. Jesus does not say, I am the good hunter tracking the lost. For that matter, he doesn't even fall back on his own training experience to say, I am the good carpenter rebuilding the broken. He says, I am the good shepherd. Jacob's tent-dwelling life is the civilized life that progresses from and builds upon the Edenic starting point. Moreover, Jacob's lifestyle keeps him closely connected to the covenant community. It's not good for the man to be alone. Jacob is plugged into his church fully by his lifestyle choice. Jacob remained among the tents. You can see now, I hope, how this description of the boys, when it's put into the context of the Bible rather than my life, is a radically different interpretation and understanding. Also, that word quiet that's used of Jacob, that same word appears in Job 1.1. And there it's rendered in English as blameless. Job was blameless. That same word appears in Psalm 37 and in Proverbs 29, and in each of those occasions is also rendered blameless. You see, Jacob's life is not quiet in the sense that he spent all his time reading and never had an adventure. It was quiet in that he's blameless. He's not been in conflict either with God or his fellow man. He is living at peace. None around him would blame him in any way. The picture is of two young men heading down very different paths in life. The older is making choices which take him away from society, away from Eden, and thus away from God. And it is not good for the man to be alone. 
The younger boy is dwelling among God's covenant people. He is living in the church. This is the weight of our choices. Whatever may be true of God's sovereign choice, it is clear that the choices of these boys matters. That's why we're given this account. The writer could have skipped over this. The writer could have said simply, as a consequence of God choosing Jacob, therefore it played out, you know, Jacob grew up and became the covenant head of the, head of the covenant household. But he gives us this account so that we understand how their choices also matter. It is akin to what happens with Solomon. One chapter tells us that the nation will be torn in two because of Solomon's sin by God doing it. And another chapter tells us the nation was torn in two because of Rehoboam's foolishness. Which is it? Yes. It's both. So after this brief description of the boys' vocations, we're told about an episode that gives us a more specific glimpse into their character. Esau has been in the wilderness hunting, and he comes home exhausted. He is spent. Now, he's a hunter. But he comes home and is so desperate for Jacob's lunch that he eventually gives up his birthright. So first, what does this tell us about Esau's success that day? And what does that suggest about his mood and mindset? Again, I hunt to be out there with the other men, to sleep in a deer blind. There's no nap as refreshing as sleeping in a deer blind. I'm just telling you, it's just wonderful. But Esau was a skillful hunter. He took it seriously. And he's come home empty-handed. He is frustrated. And he's hungry and has nothing to cook up and eat. He would have felt like a failure, and it would have put him in a foul mood. So Esau comes home exhausted, hungry, desperate for food, probably not in the best of moods. But the story didn't actually begin there, did it? It began with Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew. Now that sounds innocent enough, but this is excellent literature. And excellent literature needs us to be excellent readers. First, we have to remember Jacob's name, a play on the word heel. The event recorded at his birth when he was grasping Esau's heel, and the idiom of that day that we alluded to ever so briefly last week, the idiom of that day, that grasping somebody's heel meant to trip them up, to cause them to stumble, to cause them to fall. We were told about that heel-grasping incident so that we would anticipate in the story that somewhere Jacob was going to trip somebody up. It's possible, in fact, it's probable, in fact, I'm confident that it is not merely a stew that Jacob is cooking up here, but a scheme. Now, there's been a great deal of speculation about this, but again, we have commented over and over again how, how terse and concise our author is, that every detail there is there for a reason. So why is it mentioned that the stew is red? Why does that matter? Most commentators believe that this is a blood stew. This is not something that Hebrews would have eaten. 
And in fact, the Mosaic law, some centuries later, explicitly forbids the drinking of blood. But the consumption of blood was a routine practice of the pagan cultures. They believed that blood had magical restorative powers. And in particular, those who hunted believed in the value of the blood of their game. Much like we would have even in today's society or, or in some uh, primitive societies, uh, the, that, that new hunter, the newbie, the rookie, the young man who goes out, you know, he gets his first kill, is expected to, I don't know, eat the heart of whatever he's killed or some ritual of that nature, they would drink the blood of their game. And the fact that the stew is listed as a red stew has convinced many scholars that this is probably a blood stew. And since the Hebrews would not ordinarily eat this, why is Jacob cooking it up? You see, he is scheming. He has recognized the weakness of his older brother. And he is setting about finding a way to get the birthright that he wants. Now, you may say, Pastor, it feels like you've made an awful lot out of the word red. But the problem we've got is if we don't address it that way, then we have to ask ourselves, why does our author even mention the color of the stew? How is that relevant or important in any way? And so it does seem that this is not a throwaway detail. But it matters. And what follows it? Well, it's not hard to imagine that at a distance, Jacob sees the exhausted Esau approaching and he opens the flap of the tent so the breeze can carry, can waft the aroma of this uh, savory stew out there to the hungry hunter. Esau is unpacking his gear and as the smell grows stronger, he begins to salivate. His stomach starts to rumble. He is so very hungry. He finally just has to have the food. Give me some of your red stew. Now, if we're still thinking this is a random chance encounter, Jacob's response should put an end to that. Sell me your birthright. That is not an off-the-cuff reply. That is not a natural response to that inquiry. Jacob desperately wants the status as the future head of the covenant household. And he has recognized his older brother's weakness, and he is exploiting it. I am not suggesting that this is justified behavior. The very name, this idea of the heel grasper, the one who tripped people up, suggests he didn't go about it the right way. He is not wholesome and upright and noble in all that he did here. He is a schemer and a bit of a scoundrel. And yet, his choice was toward the promise of God when Esau's was away from it. Esau, his response portends what is about to come. I'm about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? And I'm going to add to that statement what Esau, Esau didn't think through. What many of us don't think through when we face choices. If Esau had added just one word, of what right is the birthright, of what uh, use is the birthright to me now? He makes a rash decision, perceiving the birthright to have no value 
in the present. Jacob pounces. He says, swear to me. He says, listen, innuendo and backdoor comments are not enough here. I don't want to have to litigate this at some point in the future. I want it notarized. I want your signature there. Swear to me. So Esau swore and sold his birthright to Jacob. You know, there's an irony in this story. Did you catch it? Rebecca was told what? The older shall serve the younger. And what happens next? The younger serves the older. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. I've entitled this sermon, The Weight of Our Choices, but, you know, most of you have been here long enough to know I'm terrible at picking titles. And yet, this, these choices carry phenomenal weight. And the story's conclusion bears it out. And Esau ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The editorial comment there tells us everything. Just in case we weren't yet getting the point, this whole scene illustrates that the outcome of Esau's spiritual life was predicated on the poor choices he made. In the final analysis, Esau believed some stew now was worth more than the promise of God later. And so he despised his birthright. How many of us make that same error? Pleasure now, rather than the commendation of God later. Satisfaction now, rather than the well done of our Heavenly Father later. Making choices that matter, that carry consequences but without regard to the promises of God. Jacob, though he did not pursue it perhaps in the best way, nevertheless, he longed for the blessing of God. Jacob pursued, and you might throw in there he pursued by hook or by crook, he pursued the birthright, he pursued the the place in God's covenant that came along with that. Jacob's actions remind us of Jesus' teaching some 2,000 years later. Where in Matthew 13, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jacob went all in on the promise of God, on God's covenant. And in so doing, he secured his spiritual future and that of his children and their children after that. In the final analysis, the weight of Esau's choice was damnation. The weight of Jacob's choice was salvation. Was he chosen? Yes, but he also was choosing. Dear Calvinist friend, I'm going to dare to say this. You are free to sing that old Indian hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. For you have made a real choice like Jacob did. And our choices carry 
wait. The sovereign choices of God do not negate the weight of our choices. Neither does the reality of our choices reduce God's sovereignty to nothing. Our own confession acknowledges this. Chapter 3, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says the following. And by the way, the first time, I was about 25 years old, the first time I encountered the Westminster Confession, and it was this paragraph right here that I leapt out of my seat, went running to the kitchen to show my wife, and went, look at this, this is amazing. And she was like, yeah, I know, I grew up Presbyterian. (laughs) And I was like, well, I didn't, and this is amazing. This is the paragraph right here. God, from all eternity, did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. They are not mincing any words about God's sovereign choices. God willed, ordained everything. But listen to what they say. Yet, so as... Uh, thereby neither is God the author of sin. Now listen to this. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. Nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Do you see the paradox in that paragraph? It was the will of God to ordain and establish the will of man. If our choices matter not at all, then ultimately God's will was thwarted because he gave us choices. But if we minimize the sovereign freedom of God, we reduce him to something less than the Almighty, which the Scripture clearly portrays him to be. But if we are dismissive and minimize our choices and the will we have as his image-bearers, then we reject what he has said about our choices and we make him less than the Almighty the Scriptures portray him to be. We have to live with the tension. We have to live with the paradox. God sovereignly ordains everything. And yet, our choices matter. And the application point of this sermon is simple. Your choices carry weight. This is why we have the books of Proverbs, the books of James, of Romans 12.1 and following, of Ephesians 2.11 and following. These and so many other passages teach us about making good choices, right choices. Why? Because our choices carry weight. This is why we have the astounding collection of the New Testament passages we read earlier in the service. Your choices are weighty choices. Wield them to the building up of your faith and testimony. Wield them to the benefit of others. Wield those choices to the glory of God. Amen. Lord, Let us see that our choices matter, that the decisions we make, just as the choices of Esau and Jacob put them on a particular spiritual trajectory in life, so also our choices matter. We do not understand, we do not want to diminish your sovereignty, 
but we do not want to, to belittle the, the, the volitional freedom you granted us. So help us hold in balance the tension of this paradox. Trusting you, believing your word, letting it be the final authority on these things. Whether or not we can wrap our minds around it, whether or not we can understand how they go together. Help us to live lives that honor your sovereign control of all things. Help us to live lives that take seriously the weight of our choices. And help us to do both of these things for the glory of you, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.